Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interaction. Welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute in London. Uh, this month it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Kirstein Browning and Dr Caitlin McMenamin. Kirstein is an Associate Professor of Neural and Behavioural Science at Penn State University. She's also an Associate Editor of Neurogastroenterology and Motility. Caitlin is an instructor at the Department of Neuroscience and Cell Biology at Rutgers University. So Kirstine and Caitlin, many thanks for joining us on the podcast this month. Congratulations to you and your co-authors on your paper entitled Perinatal High-Fat Diet Increases Inhibition of Dorsal Motor Nucleus of the Vagus Neurons Regulating Gastric Functions. So Kirstine, if I could start with you, um, what is the role of the vagus nerve in mediating motility within the GI tract? So I think it's well recognised that the intrinsic enteric nervous system obviously grants a huge degree of autonomous control to the gastrointestinal tract. But we know that the central nervous system provides extrinsic neural inputs that sort of regulate and modulate these functions. So the stomach and the upper small intestine in particular are much more dependent upon extrinsic neural inputs, particularly from the parasympathetic nervous system, which is provided by the vagus nerve. So the vagus is the 10th cranial nerve and it's a mixed sensory motor nerve. The cell bodies of the efferent or motor vagal fibres are contained within the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus within the caudal hindbrain. And we can see that the the vagus nerve is very important in control of the stomach. Um, When we observe the disorganized and dysregulated gastric motility that's observed immediately after a vagotomy when vagal nerves are sectioned. So we know that the vagus nerve provides a tonic cholinergic drive to the stomach, which provides a basal level of motility and tone. So what is known about the influence of the perinatal period on the development of the autonomic neurocircuitry Uh, that we associate with homeostasis? So a wide range of epidemiological studies in humans, as well as animal experiments, have shown that maternal diet, particularly during the perinatal period, which is often considered the last periods of pregnancy and the first four weeks of lactation, is particularly important in determining lifelong outcomes for offspring. Maternal overnutrition during this period is associated with um, a highly increased predisposition to develop obesity and its related comorbid conditions in adulthood. But importantly for this study, this perinatal period also corresponds to the time when autonomic neurocircuits within the central nervous system that are involved in homeostatic control develop. And previous studies have shown that the development of these neurons and these synapses are very vulnerable to a variety of environmental influences, such as maternal stress or maternal diet. And this may influence how these neurocircuits function permanently throughout life. So, Caitlin, what are the effects of a perinatal high-fat diet? Uh, What have been shown in previous studies on, on vagal function? 
Sure. So previous research on a perinatal high fat diet um, on vagal function has really mainly focused on the sensory loop of vagal neurocircuits, but our lab has really began to focus on the motor efferent loop. Um, so previous studies in our lab have shown that in addition to sensory and morphological alterations, um, DMV neurons of adult rats had decreased excitability and input resistance, and they also had a reduced ability to fire an action potential when exposed to this perinatal high-fat diet uh, during development. So these results really led us to the present experiments that were published in this paper. So what were the aims of your study? So the main aims of this study were really to investigate the effects of a perinatal high-fat diet on gastric projectile gastric projecting DMV neurons, um, and we really were focusing on the GABAergic inhibitory synaptic transmission and whether these changes influence gastric tone and motility in vivo. What methods uh, did you use to investigate uh, these aims? We used mainly two methods to complete the results, um, so a whole cell patched clamp recordings from gastric labeled neurons and in vivo gastric tone and motility recordings in anesthetized rats. And these were performed in juvenile sprag dolly rats that were fed a high-fat diet or a control diet beginning at perinatal, uh, perinatal, I guess, embryonic day 13. And um, what were your key results to come out from your study? The key results include a few different aspects. So first, the perinatal high-fat diet exposure increases tonic inhibitory inputs onto gastric projecting DMV neurons. So this increase in inhibition would affect vagal efferent outflow and also influence gastric tone and motility. And second, while the mechanisms responsible for this increased synaptic inhibition really remain unknown, uh, the present studies suggest that the increased inhibition does not involve increased number, um, number or function of the GABA receptors, GABA uptake or also neuroglial modulation of synaptic strength. Um, another key result of these experiments were that these alterations in brainstem neurocircuit development really result in dysregulation of vagal control of gastric motor functions, and also that these alterations may at least be partially responsible for the predisposition of obesity in a perinatal high-fat diet uh, exposed rat. So I think those results are really interesting and really important, but what do you think were the limitations of your study? Sure. So there were definitely a few limitations of the present study. Um, some include selectivity of the drug, um, use of the diet, and the period of development relating to human development. So by Qculine, um, the non-selective GABA-A GABA antagonist that we used, tends to become non-selective at concentrations greater than 30 micromolars onto receptors that are similar to the GABA-A receptor. So an example of this might be a glycine receptor. Um, glycine currents are not present in control adult animals. Therefore, the use of 30 micromolars or greater, such as 50 micromolars, which we used in these studies, um, should not exactly matter. Um, so the differences that we saw in the two concentrations may suggest that bacuculine may be becoming non-selective onto another neurotransmitter that's not present in control rats. So another limitation is that the diet that we use is a very extreme high-fat diet. Um, we used it so we can have fast results and um, really see the differences between controls and high-fat. So we used a 
than fat diet. Um, other studies studying a high fat diet tend to use like 40% fat or so, which is known as the cafeteria and maybe more, more of a realistic uh, Western diet. And another limitation may be the developmental period um, in rats is different than humans. So the period that we're studying in juvenile rats may actually be equivalent to the third trimester in humans. So Kirsten, coming coming back to that final point uh, that uh, Caitlin made so nicely, what do you think are the potential implications of these results for the perinatal and early childhood period in humans? So I think it's it's clear from you know a wide range of previous studies in both humans and rodent models that this perinatal period has quite profound consequences for offspring. Um, what we don't know is what the exact period period of vulnerability is within that time frame. Is it embryonic or is it lactation that becomes more important? And they may have you know, different outcomes in terms of advice that would be given to expectant mothers if this, trans this study was truly translational. Um, what I think we can say from this study is that we can suggest that there are some quite surprising alterations in autonomic neurocircuits controlling gastric functions and that these changes appear permanent. Um, our study would suggest that exposure to a perinatal high-fat diet renders vagal motor neurons innervating the stomach less excitable, both intrinsic excitability as well as an increased inhibitory synaptic input onto these neurons. Now, remember, these neurons normally provide a tonic excitatory drive to the stomach and the upper GI tract to control motility. So decreasing their excitability is likely to have profound consequences for the normal regulation of gastric tone or motility or emptying. So we know, for example, that a more relaxed stomach requires an increased volume of food to be ingested to trigger satiation. So um, an increased inhibition of these neurons may be expected to lead to ingestion of larger meals, which in turn contributes to the development of obesity. So what, how do you think these results take the overall field forward? And, um, and in, in your view, what are the key knowledge gaps that still remain? So I think this study raises some questions regarding um, the vulnerability of these really important brainstem neurocircuits during very critical developmental periods and the potential um, long-term, even lifelong outcomes in a variety of gastrointestinal and potentially other physiological functions. So in many ways, this study raises more questions than it's answered. It will be important to define exactly what other inhibitory neurotransmitter it is that appears present within these neurocircuits. So GABA has always been assumed to be the principal, if not the only inhibitory neurotransmitter used at this synapse. Perinatal overnutrition appears to result in the continued use of an additional inhibitory neurotransmitter, and it will be important to, to define what that transmitter is. As I mentioned earlier, it will also be important to define the critical time period during development when these neurocircuits are vulnerable, during pregnancy or during lactation or a combination of both. And obviously, um, the mechanism by which these changes occur would be important to define. How does exposure to a high-fat diet during this period alter development? And potentially, what other environmental factors may also impact development in similar ways? So uh, with that, I'd like to uh, thank you both for, for an excellent podcast this month and to your other co-authors for 
for a super paper um, and I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in and I look forward to welcoming you again on another instalment of the podcast uh, next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.